Good morning, everyone. My name's Chris. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, we're looking at chapters 42 and 43, although mostly focusing uh, yeah, on what we've just read. Uh, before we start, I want to just remind you, for those of you that are members uh, in particular, that uh, Glenn's term is up for renewal uh, as lead pastor. So if you're a member, you should have got sent out a kind of pastoral review form. Uh, you've got two weeks to fill that out, uh, so can I remind you to do that. Um, if you are not a member but still want to uh, contribute to the discussion, uh, then you can talk to Len Lawrence uh, have a chat to him. If you don't know who that is, come and have a chat to me and I can point you to the right person. Um, but yeah, you've got two weeks to fill that out and hand that in. Uh, so yeah, please do that. I certainly don't want to be leading the church. Um, <laughs> let me... Uh, seriously. Um, <laughs> love you guys. Let me pray for us. Father God, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And so we ask today that you would light our way. Help us to understand this word to us and see how it points us to Jesus and shows us how to live. Amen. Uh, well, I moved out of home when I, I think I was about 18. I went to Perth, I was living in Albany, went to Perth for uni. I packed everything into my 1993 Ford Laser. Uh, my entire bedroom fitted into that. It was a pretty slow trip to Perth, but anyways. Um, and went to Perth for four years, studied, and then I returned back home, uh, where I lived there for one year before getting married uh, and moving out for good. Uh, if you've ever moved out and you've moved back in with your parents, then you'll know that the relationship is never quite the same the second time around. You know, you're used to your independence and freedom, and then suddenly you move back home and your parents want to know where you are, who you're with, where you're going, if you'll be home for dinner. And for me personally, right, actually it was a really good experience. It was great. I love being back with mum and dad and they didn't hound me that much. But I get it that for others, it can be really tough. And things have changed, right? That's the whole point, is that something has changed in the relationship. It's gone, you've changed, they've changed. There's been this distance and this time and this space that's happened. And Ezekiel 43 is about that. It's about God returning home to live with his people, from uh, chapter, four, chapter 40 to uh, where we are now and actually a few chapters on, Ezekiel the prophet has been given this VR tour, this vision of the temple. He's been given all these measurements and, and, and all these plans for how the temple is all laid out. And, and when he gets all of that, then God returns home. God had left the temple because of the people of Israel's rebellion against him, but then in his grace and kindness, God was coming back. God was not going to abandon his people. And, and this is, uh, that was, uh, the, the people had been exiled in Babylon, you remember that? The people had been exiled in God, Babylon, uh, and God had, had left Israel and actually gone to be with his people. Uh, it's mentioned there, the, the vision that Ezekiel had earlier on, as he sits by the waters of Babylon, he saw the vision of God. God was always with his people, 
But now it's not just God with his people, it's God with his people in the land, living amongst his people once again. And as God returns home, there's two key things about God, about who he is, that's going to affect the relationship between God and his people. It's going to be his holiness and his glory. So if you're a note taker, they're your two headings for this morning, God's holiness and God's glory. Now, holiness is one of those words that we don't really see much out in the wild anymore, but it it basically means something that is holy or uh, something that is special or separate. If something is holy, then it has a special dedicated use. Something that's holy is, is kind of kept separate from the stuff that is common or unholy. And the temple was holy. It was to be kept separate. And that's the point of those giant walls that are going around the temple complex that we read there at the end. If you've got your Bibles, look at chapter 42 and verse 20. So he measured the area on all four sides. It had a wall around it, 500 cubits long and 500 cubits wide, to separate the holy from the common. First thing to realize is that there are grades to holiness. For example, we've got, we've got some cups and some glasses in our house, and down the end, there's the, the plastic cups, there for kind of common use. Then, as you move up, you've got glasses, and they're more special, they're kind of holy. And even more special again are my great-grandmother's crystal sherry glasses. There's kind of this levels of holiness, and that's true in your houses, I'm sure, but true for the temple as well. And, and so there's these kind of four areas in the temple. There, there's firstly outside the temple, which is all the common stuff. Then you move inside the temple, which is for the holy people of God. And then further into the temple area again is the area for the priests, And that area was divided into two areas. There was the Levites and the Zadokites. The Zadokites were more special. They were were more special, so they had greater access uh, because they were more faithful than the Levites. But no one could get into the most central area, the Holy of Holies, because that was where God was, and that was the fourth area. All this talk about holiness, though, I think makes us need to have a bit of a think about ritual states. Uh, We come across this idea of ritual and different states of holiness. Uh, It comes up here and also quite a lot in the book of Leviticus. And so I'm just going to take us on a bit of an excursion to think about ritual states. What I mean by uh, these ritual states is this. Uh, There are three categories of purity in the Bible. There's the impure or unclean, the pure, and then the holy. And there are four things you need to know about these states. Firstly, ritual purity is different to moral purity. For example, if you touched a dead body, that would make you unclean, but it doesn't make you sinful. Also, uh, being a priest in the temple doesn't mean that you don't sin. A priest can still be holy and sinful. Ritual purity is different to moral purity, uh, although there are times when they do cross. 
Uh, for example, if you deliberate under the in the Old Testament, man, if you were an Israelite, if you deliberately ate bacon, then you would both be unclean and a sinner. Because you'd be unclean because you ate the bacon, but you'd be a sinner because you deliberately disobeyed God. So there is crossover at times, but ritual purity is different to moral purity. And secondly, the whole point of these ritual states is to show people what they could and couldn't do, or in the case of the temple, where they could and couldn't go. For example, think of a hospital. You can't go to a hospital if you're sick. You're, you're kind of unclean, right? But if you're clean, you can go into a hospital. But you can't just walk into an operating theatre. If you want to go into an operating theatre, then you need an extra level of holiness. You need this extra level of purity to enter the operating theatre. Which leads into the third point. People and objects can move in and out of these states all the time. A surgeon, right, can move between being sick, being healthy, and then making themselves holy enough to kind of enter the operating theatre. And and so there were sacrifices and things that you had to do if you wanted to move into a higher category of, uh, of these ritual kind of purity. So let me lead you through that. If you wanted to move up the ladder... Uh, You'd have to cleanse and purify yourself. You'd have to consecrate and sanctify yourself to kind of move up the ladder. Uh, Going down, well, it's just the kind of opposite words, right? You profane what is holy, which then becomes, which is just becomes pure. And then what becomes pure can then be defiled to become impure. So you can move up and down these states. And fourthly, The more ritual that's involved, the more special something is. The the requirements to enter the temple complex were much lower than if you were a priest offering a sacrifice, which shows you something of the value and the importance that the role of the priest has and the space which they were going into. Uh, Glenn used a classic example just then when we talked about the Lord's Supper, He talked about all the ritual that's involved with the funeral for Queen Elizabeth. And all of that ritual stuff demonstrates to you the importance and value of that thing. And so the temple, right? The temple is the focus of all of this ritual because it's communicating something about its importance. And so what is it that's important about the temple? Well, it's that the holy God dwells there. Just like how you can't walk in from the street, straight into an operating theatre, you can't just approach God. The nation of Israel, they defiled themselves by their sin, they'd become unclean. And so God had removed himself from their presence. God had left the people and the people had been removed from the land. But Ezekiel is showing that God will once again return and dwell amongst his people. And for a holy God to live among an unholy people, there needs to be a temple, because the holy 
and the common must be kept separate. And that is because impurity is contagious. Right? As an Israelite, you had to be very careful what you touched and where you went, because impurity was catching. And so for God to dwell amongst his people, he, he builds this massive structure with all these walls around it and all these protective mechanisms, all these sacrifices and things to keep the impure away from the holy. But here's where things get really interesting, right? Because when God became human and dwelt among us in Jesus, there was this great reversal. Impurity is contagious, but with Jesus, holiness becomes the contagion. Right, do you ever notice that? Jesus runs around Israel. He's touching sick people and dead bodies and, and eating with Gentile sinners, and he doesn't become unclean. Instead, it's his holiness that rubs off on others, and they become clean. And that's exactly what we need. For God to dwell with his people, we need his holiness to become our holiness, which is exactly what Jesus' sacrifice did. His cleansing blood purifies us from all unrighteousness. In Jesus, we are holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Now, I think there's roughly three questions that we all want answers to in our life. Am I all right? Am I worth anything? And am I special? You know, we, we all long for acceptance and security. And in Jesus, all three of those answer, questions are answered for us. See, as Christians, we're justified which is the answer to the question, am I all right? Am I okay? Yes. Yes, you are, because Jesus makes us right with God. Also, we've been redeemed, which is the answer to the question, am I worth anything? What am I worth? What's my value? But if God has redeemed us, then we have been bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus. And thirdly, are we holy? Am I special? And the answer is yes. We are God's holy and special possession. Jesus accomplished what we never could. He won for us an eternal holiness that makes it possible for God to dwell, not just amongst us, but in us. See, the focus of the Old Testament is about God dwelling among his people in the midst of his people. But now, God actually dwells in us by his Spirit. You know, as an Israelite, on the one hand, it would be encouraging to hear that the temple would be rebuilt and that God would once again dwell with his people. That would be great to hear that. But actually, the walls and the sacrifices and all that purity stuff, it just kind of highlights our imperfections even more. It's, it's literally the point of these chapters, is to show that we cannot get close to God. 
Ezekiel is to describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. See, there's this massive chasm that lies between us and God. You can't just go and meet with God. God is holy and we are not. That is until God's holiness rubs off on us and his holiness becomes ours. When by the blood of the most perfect lamb, we become washed and sanctified and justified. When his holiness becomes our holiness. When that happens, then we have perfect, unlimited priority access to God. And so we can confidently enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have priority access to God right now because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Last week, Glenn talked a little bit about how this passage is often used as evidence that the, that the temple will one day be rebuilt. But here's the question. Why would we want that? You know, to rebuild the temple is just to put back all the things that separate us from God that Jesus died to remove. I don't know about you, but I am not giving up my access to God that Jesus has won for me by his death. That's crazy. You know, even if the temple gets rebuilt, I'm not going to be visiting it. Why would I do that? I don't need to. I've got the Spirit living in me, and Jesus sits at the right hand of God. I don't need a temple. And if you're a Christian, then this is true for you too. Why would you give up your access to God that Jesus died to give you? You know, that's literally the message of the book of Galatians, right? book of Galatians says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let's not burden ourselves by going back to the rules of the temple. Rules about where you can go and when you can go there and what you have to do. In Jesus, we have freedom. We've got priority access to God. Why would we want to go back to that? In Jesus, we have it all. But you know, there are still some people on the outside, right? And without Jesus, they will miss out and they will perish. Jesus wants everyone to come to him. And here's the thing for us. We know how to get to God. We know that to get to God is through Jesus. But our world and our friends and our neighbours and our family, do they know that? Do they need to know that? Yeah, they do. We're the ones who know how an impure people can be pure. But there are plenty of people who don't know that. And who are they going to hear it from if it's not you? Well, as God returns home, we've thought about his holiness. Now let's think about his glory. Back in chapter 10 of this book, Ezekiel had seen a vision of God's glory leaving the temple. God had been driven away by the people's sin. 
their holiness had compromised God's ability to live among them. But there was always these kind of notes of encouragement throughout this book, that one day God would return. And now Ezekiel sees that vision, that day when God would live among his people. If you've got your Bibles there, look at chapter 43, and I'm going to read from verse 1. This is the vision. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of uh, saw, saw, sorry, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I'd seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I'd seen by the Kabar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Back in chapter 10, God's glory had left haltingly, kind of almost unwillingly. But now God returns quickly and decisively. And the whole point of the temple, the whole point of seeing this vision, is that God's presence has now returned. You know, it's actually not about the building. It's not really about the glory either, although that is important. It's about the presence of God with his people. And where God is, well, there you see his glory. That's the point of this kind of visible manifestation of God's glory. It's showing us that God is really there. I think that raises the question, well, what's changed? God had left and now he's returned. The, the people had sinned and, and, and there'd been the separation. What's changed? How can God now dwell with his people? Have they suddenly become any less sinful? I think there are three things that have happened in this book that allows God to kind of come back and dwell once more with his people. Firstly, it's that the people have been punished. They've been justly punished for their sins. It's all been paid for. Their balance is back to zero. And secondly, God has promised to give his people his spirit to enable them to keep his law. His spirit is going to help them live holy lives. And thirdly, God has promised to send his Messiah, the great king of Israel, to shepherd and look after his people. And those three things that, well, they've come to pass in Jesus. In Christ, how sins have been paid for by his death in our place. And he has poured out his spirit into our hearts so that we can live for him. And Jesus is our great Messiah, the great king who rules and shepherds us with love and justice and kindness. You know, this picture of, of the temple is as good as it gets for the nation of Israel. It's as good as it gets. They're in exile. They look forward to this day when God would return, when God's glory would be there in the temple among his people. It's kind of as good as it gets. It's also a little bit lame, right? Like, because actually for us, it's not as good as it gets. It gets better. Because in Jesus, God came to us. Not in a vision, not in a dream, not in a rush, kind of ushered straight from the car, up the steps, straight into the holies of holies before anyone could see him. Not like that. Rather, he came in the flesh. 
Jesus was a real person who you could talk to and spend time with. He was God with us. And from time to time, you catch glimpses of his glory. You know, as he told the storm to be quiet, as he cast out demons, as he healed the sick, as he made the blind see, as he turned the water into wine... All of those things were like the camera flash that just for an instant you caught something of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But actually the, the brightest, the biggest glimpse of God's glory that we get to see is in the cross. Edmund Clowney, a theologian, he says this. He says, The measure of God's glory is the staggering grace of his love expended at the cross. See, how do we know God is glorious? How do we know that he's worthy of our praise and worship? Well, it's because of the immense love that he has shown for us by letting his son die on a cross for our rebellion against him. The measure of God's glory is the staggering grace of his love expended at the cross. Because it was there that God's own son was made the sacrifice for the judge bore the judgment. Well, as we finish up, let me give you another quote from Edmund Clowney. He says this, It is not so much that Christ fulfills what the temple means, rather Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. It is not so much that Christ fulfills what the temple means, rather Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. See, all of this stuff about the temple, it's meant to show us Jesus. The temple existed for him. And so it's in him that we can approach God. It's in Jesus that we have priority access. And so we pray to the Father through Christ the Son, by the power of the Spirit. That sounds really complex. To the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. But all it's saying is that you can talk to God as your Father, knowing that your access to Him comes through the finished work of Jesus. And a little bit like a postie, the Spirit is the one who delivers those prayers. We don't need to go anywhere. We don't need to do anything special. We don't need to pray to Mary or to any other saint. We don't need a priest. We have Jesus. Jesus gives us his holiness so we can approach God, and it's in Jesus that we know God's glory. And so we praise and worship him. Not just as we sing on a Sunday morning, but with our whole lives. As God moves back home, the challenge for the people of Israel from verse 9 is to put away their sin, to live for God. See, moving back home brings changes. And Israel were to see the holiness and the glory of God and to be moved to a way of life that was pleasing to him. All of our life should be in praise and worship of God. 
as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, were to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. We're to live lives worthy of the gospel. We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. We're to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. We're to follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. We're to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. We're to boast in the hope of the glory of God. And we're to do everything, including eating and drinking, for the glory of God. Everything that we do is to flow out of the holiness and glory of God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you based on the finished work of Christ alone. In him we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and find help in our time of need. Father, please forgive us for our sin that has separated us from you. But Father, we thank you so much for the finished work of Jesus in whom we have complete forgiveness. And so, Father, by your spirit, we ask that you would do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to your power that is work within us. Please help us to give you all the glory and praise, we pray. Amen.